Welcome to episode 134 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Tony. And I'm Trevor. And we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Trevor, my man, how you doing? Doing quite well. How are you, Tony? I'm doing well. So Trevor and I are uh, hanging out at the campus of Westminster Seminary in uh, Philadelphia. We are here for the Philadelphia Conference on Reformed Theology. Did I get that right? Yep. Uh, Which is held every year. I mentioned it last week. It has been a phenomenal conference. Trevor, I don't think our audience is uh, familiar with you. So why don't you just tell a little bit about yourself, who you are, how we know each other, etc. Yeah. Um, So... Tony, I met you however many years ago, probably at least a couple, when uh, you came onto the admin team of the Reformed Pub, yep. which the Reformed Pub, for those of you who don't know, is a um, spinoff group of the uh, late and great, well, maybe I shouldn't say that, the great uh, Reformed <laughs> Pubcast on a hiatus. Hi, Lesson Tanner, we love you. Um, uh, spin-off group of that, so I've been an admin there, Tony's been an admin there for a handful of years, and um, our friendships developed there, and uh, things have been pretty great. Yeah. Yeah, you, you can say whatever you want, Les and Tanner don't listen to the show. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Yeah, I've tried to get them to listen, and Les is always like, oh yeah, I'll have to give it a nan, he never does. I'll just so spam him, and then he'll ignore it that way. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, um, Trevor and I came down for the conference, um, which the topic has been Ordo Salutis, uh, it's been pretty phenomenal. I'm sure that uh, you guys will get some of my reflections in the coming weeks as I process it. But Trevor, what's what's been kind of your take on the conference? What's been your kind of your big um, takeaways? Well, how's it been impacting you? Yeah, let me just pull up my notes here. So um, we just listened to an address by Liam Gallagher. I think I'm pronouncing his last name yep. right from uh, Titus 2. And uh, he was talking about sanctification in the Ordo. And um, one thing that stuck out to me, Liam is, man, he's like pedal to the metal all the time, and I love it. Um, But he talked about us actually, he had a lot of really kind of spaced, one-liners interspersed in his address that were impactful. And one thing he was talking about was that we are the objects of his grace, and the, the elders in my church have asked me to preach in July, in a couple months, and I very rarely preach, once every three or four years. And um, uh, that's been on my mind as I have been listening to these addresses, you know, as I'm looking at the text that I'm going to preach, which, you know, it's not a big deal. Like, it's just, it's, it, it is a big deal, but it's not a big deal. Like, I'm not a big deal, but God's word is. And as I think about me um, reading a text that I'm preparing and preparing to preach to fellow believers and brothers and sisters that I love, like, um, you know, Liam was talking about, well, the, the passage in Titus he was addressing from Titus 2, you know, the grace of God has appeared. Um, you know, training us to renounce ungodliness and, and so on and so forth. And his grace appeared. So God himself has appeared in his fullness since he is inseparable. And it's like, for me, the thing that's sticking out is, you know, have I realized this? And when I preach from the scriptures, whatever passage it is, since it's all about God, it all terminates on him 
his glorious salvation for us, like, do, do I, do I recognize that we are the objects of his grace? Like we rightly say and preach and teach so often that, you know, the, the, uh, you know, the, the chief end of man is to, um, well, I'm totally spacing out. I'm going, I'm, I'm, I I got the Piper, I got the Piper version in my head, um, is to, uh, glorify and enjoy God forever. Um, and it's like, yeah, that's our chief end, but we have to recognize that he's a person too. And he, he, he acts, he is, sorry, we'll we'll make this a Trinity episode. Um, but he, it's always a Trinity episode. Yeah. yeah, Fair enough. Fair enough. That's my secret. It is going to be a Trinity episode (laughs) actually. Yeah. That's my secret cap. Um, like we're the objects of his grace. Just that sentence is something that's sticking with me tonight. Uh, There's a handful of other things, but that's what's sticking with me right now. How about you? Yeah. I mean, something that um, it'll come in to the topic that we're going to talk about tonight. But, you know, Liam was actually one of the people who kind of kicked off the EFS debate mm, um, yeah, in yeah. 2014, 2015. Was it 2015? It sounds right. 2016. Yeah. Whenever it was. Yeah. yeah. Uh, 325. Um, <laughs> he was one of the people that kind of kicked that off. And so his preaching, for better or worse, I think for better, but for better or worse, has sort of... Um, you probably noticed it, like the doctrine of divine simplicity, the oh, yeah. doctrine of aseity, like it works itself into everything when he preaches. Yep. Um, and the point he made, and I'll come back to this when we get into the episode here, once we talk about what our topic is, but he, he made the point that um, the grace of God is simply the love of God oriented towards fallen sinful men. Yep. And the, the choice that God makes not to exercise his wrath upon them. And then, of course, there's this whole forensic mechanism with the cross, this whole background that we're talking about in this atonement series about how it is that God accomplishes that without violating his own justice. Yeah. But he made the point that um, the attributes of God are not distinct from God in the way that our attributes are. And that when we say that God is love, we don't mean that like God has the attribute of love somehow accidental to his nature or even talking about like an attribute of love, but that, that when we say love, like divine love, we really are just talking about the single simple God yep. and that God is love all yep. the way through. He kept on saying, and so our topic tonight is going to end up crystallizing. I'm going to guess around uh, definite atonement. When I think about the, the video that we we're going to talk about, yep. um, And even in this passage, right, if the grace of God is the love of God and God simply is love, then the grace of God appearing and training for righteousness means that God himself appearing and dwelling within us as the Holy Spirit or dwelling within us by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, that is effectual unto salvation for all of God's people. So it's it in order for definite atonement not to be true and we'll get into some other passages. Yeah. God would have to come reveal himself to us. So I'm just going to read the whole passage here. He started in verse 10, but I'm going to read from verse 9. It's Titus 2:9. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, 
waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it continues on. I'm not going to keep reading. Mm -hmm. But this is actually a passage that a lot of people look at and point to to sort of try to refute Stephen Atonement because it says it brings salvation for all people. Oh, yeah. yeah. Right. But here's the here's the kicker. If God coming and dwelling in his people or dwelling in uh, God appearing in grace is what trains us in righteousness, which was Liam's whole point, then we would have to say God appearing may not actually accomplish what happens when God appears, mm. right? So all across the Bible, when when the Lord appears in a theophany, there's an immediate response that the people can't avoid. They fall down in fear. They act as though dead people. Yep. And God has to kind of like bring them out of that stupor and say like, fear not, I'm not here to destroy you. So even a passage like this, if we understand God's aseity and that he's always accomplishing what he, what he desires because his decree is not distinct from his person. Yep. Um, or I should say his his will is not distinct from his person, yeah, and yeah. his decree is simply sure. uh, the the Outworking. the intention to fulfill his will his will yeah. in uh, in the temporal world. Then that decree must also be effectual, because the otherwise we have to say his will is not effectual. Yeah. Which How means can it not be? His will is not actual. And God is pure act. Yeah. So we're going to get into some heady topics mm. about divine simplicity, mm. right? I had a seven-hour drive to get down here, and I listened <laughs> to podcasts on three times, and it was like seven hours of James Dollars all dumping divine simplicity and aseity into my head. So I'm a little jacked up right now. <laughs> my man. But uh, we got an email from a listener um, who also has his own podcast. The show is called Sonic Reformation. Um, it's a decent show. I, I, um, I listened to a couple episodes on the way up. Um, they've got some really good stuff. It's kind of a sort of discernment uh, podcast. They focus on polemics. Um, they, they had a lot of good things to say about the social justice issues. Um, they have a lot of good things to say about false teaching. They did some responses to Leighton Flowers. And the the uh, listener or the the person who's on this podcast asked me to respond to a video um, that was a Leighton Flowers video. Uh, he had a guy on. I think the name was Ken Wilson. You watched it, right? Yes. Yep. The guy's name was Ken Wilson. And I have not done anything to validate or or invalidate any of these claims in terms of this guy's credentials. But I have no reason to disbelieve or think sure, they're made sure. up. And apparently, this uh, this gentleman uh, did his doctoral dissertation on Augustine. Um, and his his basic thesis, um, which just a side note, you can write a dissertation and defend a dissertation that is 100% completely not correct and still <laughs> successfully defend that dissertation. So the fact that his dissertation was approved really doesn't say anything about the truth of it. It says more, much more about the um, scholarship methodology and the the you know technical elements. But either way, he do he defended his doctoral dissertation, and it's funny because usually when you do a doctoral dissertation, you have to come up with something novel. But his doctoral dissertation was basically that Augustine invented uh, predestination. Um, that that yeah. nowhere in the history of the church was there ever anything similar to Augustine's doctrine of predestination uh, until Augustine invented it. Pretty much. Out of whole cloth, uh, it's like a fusion of Gnosticism and Manichaeanism. Yeah, yep, um, yep. And and nobody nobody had ever heard of it before. So we're not going to respond to that video point by point because, frankly, like it's a silly thesis uh, for a number of reasons. We're going to talk about just a few on the surface logical issues with at least the way that it was presented in this video. Now yeah. I haven't read Dr. Wilson's dissertation or his book. Um, and so maybe he articulates this in a much more robust way. Um, but there are a number of sort of like logical issues with the way they presented on this video. What, what did you think about that video when you watched it? 
certainly I'm not a, a church history scholar. I listened to a handful of Augustine, well, lectures about Augustine after the fact. Um, but it, some of the things initially struck struck me as a little bit dubious because I mean, if, if you, for me, if I kind of wanted to cut to the chase, like, well, you know, okay, so Mr. Uh, Doctor Wilson, I would assume. Is that what anyone doctor, who does a thesis doctor, yeah. gets a doctor? Okay, that was a, I think it was a dissertation. It was, I mean, it was at was at Oxford. It was Rec Middle School. Oh, good. Yeah, it wasn't yeah. like you went to some podunk community college and got a doctorate yeah, somehow. Yeah, 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 yeah. Anyways, um, so either way, uh, Mr. Wilson, um, regardless of the thesis of you know, uh, so uh, asserting that Augustine more or less invented predestination via a kind of twisted relic of Manichaeanism and determinism and whatever other fancy buzzwords you want to throw at it. Um, <laughs> to cut to the chase, it's like, well, uh, no, I, I don't think Augustine invented that because predestination was, uh, if you want to say it this way, invented by God. Right. It's, it's biblical. Like, yeah. we're, we're, we're showing our cards here pretty straight. Yeah, and that's um, where we're going to end up, yeah. I think, in this yeah. show, is we're going we're gonna to... S- bypass the argument entirely and just go straight to the source. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the, the main logical thing that I saw, um, you know, this impulse that, um, particularly, um, I'm going to use the word traditionalist cause that's the label they've given them themselves, yep. Yep. um, with the disclaimer that their theology is not the traditional theology of the Southern Baptist Convention, not uh, convention. Um, it's not the traditional theology of Baptists in general. It's not even the traditional theology of the Anabaptists. Yeah. Um, but the the Arminian, or even that's probably not correct. Yeah. The the anti-Calvinist Southern Pelagian. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. I the, hear Arminian. I think Southern Pelagian. Sorry. The, um, <laughs> the anti-Calvinist branch of the Southern Baptist Convention. Um, has labeled themselves the traditionalist. So I'm just going to use that term for, yeah. for sake of simplicity. But the, the traditionalist argument and the impulse to make this kind of argument about Augustine comes from the fact that um, Calvinists point to Augustine as a historical precedent in the church for this kind of theology. Um, and that's true, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's all over the place. And it's not just Calvinists, right? It's Roman Catholics who are more predestinarian, the sort of Thomas line of thinking. Yep, yep. Um, they point to Augustine as well. Yeah. And there's a number of reasons why they don't point earlier, but they make the argument basically that um, it, it's like this appeal to authority that they're desperately trying to undercut. But then at the same time, they're making the argument that, well, because this view wasn't present in the early church, then it, it's not the true biblical model. Yeah. And so they're they're almost like appealing to the absence of this view as the authority, yeah. as if to say the fact that we don't have a record of this view prior to 450 or whenever, you know, Augustine, whichever part of, part of Augustine you're pointing to, the fact that we don't have that, they're pointing at the absence of evidence as evidence of absence. Yeah. And it's funny because they make one point, um, they make a point, kind of a side point in the video I think it was uh, Dr. Flowers who was talking about how Calvinists call um, Arminians Pelagians or or talk about a Pelagian view. Sure. And he made the point, I don't know if you caught this, he made the point that um, most of Arminius' writing has been lost 
And so we can't really be sure exactly what he taught. Yeah. The funny thing is yeah. that in another episode on a different podcast with Dr. Wilson that I listened to, um, I think it's doctor. I'm just going to keep calling him Dr. Sure. Wilson. Yeah. Yeah. Um, another episode that I listened to, he made the point that we only have 51 existing authors from the years prior to Augustine. So Leighton Flowers makes the argument that because we don't know what we don't have most of what Pelagius wrote, we can't really know what Pelagius uh, thought yeah, and taught. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then at the same time, they're going to say, well, but we have the, we have these documents from the early church. There was a lot more written in the early church yeah. and it was destroyed potentially for the same reasons. And actually, if their thesis about why Pelagius documents were written or were destroyed because the church adopted a different view. Sure then wouldn't we also actually go to reason that there probably were predestinarians in the early church whose documents were destroyed by people who didn't want to hold a predest... So that whole argument is sort of self-defeating. And there's one thing, we, we didn't do affirmations and denials, but one thing that I love, I love in just the most base sense, is people who hold self-contradictory views because they're so easy to just pick apart. Double-edged so sword. If you don't, if you don't uh, take anything away from this episode... Take away the fact that Leighton Flowers has undercut this ent his entire video on this by setting up a historical standard that refutes his own argument in the video. Yeah. So, so all that said, <laughs> um, we're not going to do a point-by-point -point rebuttal. Um, we're not going to do a back-and-forth slugfest with Leighton Flowers. Um, I might do a little bit more research and try to find something prior to Augustine. Um but Augustine's theology, when you really understand it, his predestinarian theology is actually an outflow of his theology of divine simplicity and aseity. And the reason I say that is this, is that in, in the doctrine of divine simplicity, which we haven't talked about a ton on this show, um, God is a single, simple uh, being or a single, simple whatever, something. Um, we don't even know how to talk about a simple thing. We don't know whether to say nature, person, whatever. Mm. But he's single and he's simple. And so that means that in God, it is not a different thing for God to be powerful than it is for God to be loving or knowledgeable or wise or any of those things. Yeah. But another feature is that God's will is not distinct from God's subsistence. Yep. And so God exists as a uh, the, the theological term is pure act, meaning that there's no potential in God. God could not ever become more than he is. He cannot cease to be what he already is. God is what he is. And, and that's all, all there is, right? That's kind of the way to remind God is what he is. And that's all that there is in God. And all that is in God is God. Yep. And that includes God's will. So God's will is God. It's yep. not as though, you know, in our will, we, we can conceptualize ourselves having a different will. Yeah. And so, even when we say God's will is God, implicit, when we use our language, right. it's almost like we're talking about two different things, but we're not. Right. It's because and that's they're inseparable. Because, right. And that's because God has had to accommodate himself to creaturely language exactly. in order to reveal himself. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so what this comes down to then is that God, when he issues his decree, when he, he decrees what he intends to do in a temporal fashion, right? God's will, God's decree is to borrow, to take language from the Westminster Shorter Catechism, God's decree is his eternal purpose, whereby for his own glory, he foreordains whatever shall come to pass or whatsoever comes to pass. And so that decree is basically God saying, my eternal will, I'm, I'm going to carry that out in a temporal fashion. 
And so the decree is his his intention for how exactly his will will unfold temporally in creation. And so then, you know, the next question is, how does God execute his decrees? And the answer is in the works of creation and providence. Yep. And so this this is where I want to go is we're, we're not going to talk anymore about the video. What we're going to do now is we're going to look at a few passages in the scriptures and we're going to show that predestination, election, definite atonement, the, the classical doctrines of grace. Um, we're not going to go through all of them, but the, the doctrines of grace are biblical doctrines. So it doesn't matter if Augustine was the first person outside of the scripture to teach it on one level because it's the Bible. Like this is Paul's teaching. This is Jesus's teaching. This is Moses's teaching. This is Jeremiah's teaching. This is God's teaching in the scriptures. Um, so Dr. Flowers, I doubt you're going to listen to this. If you happen to, I would love to have a conversation with you, but I'm not going to do a back and forth. So if you want to respond, you can have the last word. That said, I also think what's interesting is that these 51 uh, figures that we have documentation of in the early church, yeah. the vast majority of them are Greek writers. Um, the only Latin writer that we really have good documentation of prior to Augustine is Tertullian. Tertullian. And Tertullian actually is responding to some Latin theology uh, that seems to be very deterministic. So the fact that Tertullian is responding to a deterministic theology entails the fact that there was a deterministic theology to respond to. Sure. So that aside. Yep. So Trevor, what passage are you going to look at? And which which doctrine are we looking at? So um, simply, predestination would be the doctrine. And um, the classic text that I thought of when... Hey, you know, if the Bible first talks about this and first teaches this as a pure truth, a pure doctrine, uh, Ephesians 1, um, the kind of wonderful run-on sentence that Paul has in the first chapter. Um, so, oh, how much to read of it. I'll read starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. I'll stop there, but it continues. Um, so, I mean, just... The best way sometimes to read scripture is... Well, not sometimes, but just reading this face value, yeah. it's it's pretty plain. Yeah. Um, you you got to do a little, you know, um, gold medal gymnastics to get around what is being said here. Right. Just to, to reiterate, uh, the end of verse 4, verse 5. In love, so, I mean, if you if you will, think back to what we were talking about with Liam and Titus 2. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. So there's his inseparable will, which is uh, eternal, unchanging, um, has, has always been decreed, I say has, that's a past tense, but it's like, right. it's kind of a nonsensical. Yeah. It's, it is always, it, it is, um, it is, our lang it, it, it is. is, there you go. Right. Yeah. Our language fails to, um, to, to comprehend this. Yeah. yeah. So anyways, um, uh, lost my spot. Uh, 
to, uh, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which, hey, we've got the, the terminus there, the, the, the purpose with which he has blessed us in the beloved. And, you know, to, to not even touch on the magnificent good news that that is for us, that um, it, it, it God's love and salvation, it, it, it has very little to do with who we are or what we have done. Right. Um, it is, it's not a response in any way. It's always been God's plan A. And I mean, I don't know. I'm, I, I'm a pretty, I like to read a lot and to, I think I'm pretty simple in, as I read. And it's like, this is really, really, really stinking good news. And for me, when I read this and I hear other people articulate other views, you know, put whatever labels we want on them. But when we start tinkering with the fact that salvation is of the Lord, I mean, you're you're getting into bad news territory yeah. there. Like, I don't want this to depend on me. I, yeah. I can't. Yeah. Yeah. Bob Godford just released a book um, published by Ligonier Ministries in honor of the 400th anniversary of the completion of Canada Dork. And uh, it's called Saving the Reformation. And the reason it's called Saving the Reformation is because his thesis is that, you know, we have Luther and we have Calvin and they establish the gospel. They reestablish the gospel as salvation by grace alone through faith alone yep. and unconditional election, which both Lutherans and Reformed uh, believe slightly different ways, but both hold to unconditional election. Um is the centerpiece of the gospel, right? Because if you have a conditioned election, then those are conditions to fulfill. Yeah. And so he makes the point, and he articulates it this way, is that in the, the Arminian Remonstrance, they make it clear that whereas Calvinists believe that God elects a particular people to be saved, yep. right? That's definite atonement. Yep. That Arminians believe that God elects conditions for people to fulfill by which they may be saved. Hmm. And those conditions are uh, are the same thing that we would say for Calvinists in terms of conditions yep. is faith, right? That they, we must trust in the Lord. But for Arminians, that trust does not come from, ultimately from the Holy Spirit. Yeah. That trust is something that we muster up. And Cal yeah. uh, Arminius actually, this is debatable, but he actually made faith the meritorious ground of faith hmm. or the ground of salvation. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you're absolutely right. That passage, and, and we've said this on the show so many times, that a lot of times when you have this sort of like these questions about the scripture, if you just back up and read a chapter before and a chapter after, the argument is clear, right? Yeah. Paul yeah. Paul is not speaking some code that you have to decipher in most cases. Yeah. That doesn't mean there aren't difficult passages. It doesn't mean that the breadth of biblical doctrine doesn't need to be synthesized oh, and yeah. systematized and understood, mm -hmm. but it's really straightforward. Absolutely. It it. Yeah, I couldn't say it better. I mean, just uh, something, I don't know, this is more speaking to the uh, probably poor habits of scripture reading in the West, but like, just like you said, you know, sitting, sitting down, reading, you know, like, a, you know, sure, a chapter before and a chapter after, but like reading a whole book of the Bible at the time, like, good grief, reading Ephesians, like, that'd probably take... Half an hour tops, like maybe like oh, 45. Not even that. Yeah, I mean, that's like if you're a slow reader. Right. Like, which that's fine. Be yeah. a slow reader. But like, it, 
just read the Bible. Yeah. It, it's it's it makes sense. Like we believe in the perspicuity of Scripture for a reason. Right. It's it's clear. There's it's, uh, as you were saying. You know, it it doesn't mean that there's not depths to mine for the rest of your life right. and more. But truth is plain and I mean, that's that's a good thing. God's yeah. gracious to us yeah. in in doing that. Like we're not some Christianity is not a gnostic goofball religion where right. you have to find out secret stuff. Right. It's right on the surface of the text. Yeah. So are you ready for a little bit of a head trip? I will try. So as I mentioned, I listen to like like no joke, I listened to like 15 hours of James Dalzell lectures in my my seven hour drive. Using the time stone. Yeah, yeah, it was pretty crazy. But I, I suddenly had this realization. Um, I used to be very much opposed to people talking about Arminianism as a heresy, and mm. I would explain away the language in this the canons of Dort um, about Arminianism being compared to Pelagianism and Pelagianism being heresy. Um, but I had this realization as I was listening to these episodes and thinking about what we were going to talk about, that the difference between um, Calvinism or Reformed theology and Arminianism is not necessarily found in the difference in predestination. It's actually a difference in the very doctrine of God, the actual identification and understanding of who God is and what he does and how he functions and what his limitations are, what what his nature is, what all that means. Um, so this is going to take a little bit of uh, a little bit of deep focus. So stick with me, everybody. So going back to divine divine simplicity, one of the features of divine simplicity and, and its correlated doctrine, divine aseity, is that God, uh, we cannot add anything to God. God is not dependent on his creature for anything, right? That's the whole point of Westminster Confession, uh, chapter two, section two, yeah. right? Chapter one is kind of like, these are, these are the basic attributes of God. Um, section two is like, God's not dependent on his creatures. And then section three gets into the Trinity. God is not dependent. He's not added to by his creation in any sense. God does not take on to kind of like, uh, get into things that are being said by like Scott Oliphant, John frame. God does not take on new properties or attributes mm -hmm. in, uh, in the act of creating, for example. And the theological reason for that is that if there are things within God's essence or within God's existence, even accidental or auxiliary things within God's existence that are not necessary, then those things are not God, which means that God's existence is one part God, one part not God, right? So we lose simplicity if we do that. Yep. So one of the things that's just, it, it's a total mind trip to get your head around um, I'm not quite sure that I'm there yet, but the last chapter, I think it's the last chapter in James Dalzell's book, All That Is In God, is a discussion about how God is the eternal creator, but that doesn't mean that creation is therefore eternal. Yeah. And that's a tricky part. And yep. so so the, the, the corner we have to turn is we have to recognize that we... We know that God is the eternal creator and we call him the eternal creator because of the creation, right? We name him as such because of the temporal effects that he reveals himself by. Yeah. But whatever it is that we mean by eternal creator is not to say that his act of creation somehow gives him a new status or a new character. Yep. Um, likewise, God is the eternal savior. Yep. Uh, but he is not the eternal savior because he 
became the savior because to say he became something is uh, improper. Yep. So I want to go to um, Exodus. Uh, let's see. Chapter three. And I'm going to start in verse. I'll start from the beginning. Chapter three. So the, the setting is that, um, you know, Egypt, um, Israel's in Egypt. All the stuff with the Nile is happening. Moses has um, killed the Egyptian. He's been confronted by the Hebrew slaves um, who kind of say, like, who do you think you are? And then he takes off. And now he is married to his wife, Sipporah, and he's living in Midian with his father-in-law. He's tending his flocks. And it says, now Moses was keeping the flocks of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flocks to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. Uh, right there is a statement of divine insanity, but that's a separate point. Uh, verse three, Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight. Why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside, he said, uh, he called out to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not come near, take off your sandals off your feet for the place on which you stand is holy ground. And he said, he being God, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. So pause button. God was eternally the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He did not become the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob when Abraham began to worship God. Yeah. Yep. So if if we take um, the the incorrect view of God being the eternal savior, then God becoming the uh, God of Abraham is determined by Abraham's decision or his response to follow God. Yeah. So since God cannot be dependent on his creatures for any aspect of his being mm. or identity, mm. we cannot say that God's status, if you will, or his identification as the God of Abraham is dependent on God, on Abraham's choice, meaning that Abraham's choice is actually dependent on the fact that God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So God being the God of Abraham precedes logically and temporally and eternally yep. Abraham being a follower of God. Yeah. So continuing on, verse 7, the Lord said, Surely I've seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of Egypt to bring them up to a land that is uh, out of a land to a good and broad land, a land flowing of milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hittites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Verse 10. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh and bring you out to my people. So then... Jumping down a little bit, Moses basically says, like, I'm not the right guy to do this. I don't, I'm not, you know, I, I, I don't, how are they going to know that you sent me? And he says, what name should I give them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. Mm -hmm. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent you. Now, I don't remember which lecture it was. Like I said, I listened to about 18 hours of lectures. Somebody at the point and at some point in the lecture made the point that the the Israelites were not asking some question about which God of the pantheon, like yeah. which God is sending you. Yeah. Yep. It was more like, how should we know? Tell us about the character of this God that you claim is sending you. Yeah. And what what Moses is told to tell them is that God is sufficient because God 
is eternally existent. And in order for something to be eternally existent, that implies aseity and simplicity. Yep. So to boil that all down here, a couple things, right? God tells him to go to my people in Egypt. So prior to the Exodus, prior to him redeeming these people out of Egypt, he's still calling them my people. Mm -hmm. Again, because if he was the God of Israel, because Israel responded to him correctly, then he becomes the God of Israel as a response to their questions. So now where does this come in with Leighton Flowers? That's exactly 100% the theology that Leighton Flowers and the traditionalists are forwarding, right? That um, God is dependent on the creatures in order to have a people. That God cannot uh, determine people to respond and love him because that violates the free will of the creatures. But the entailment of that is that God's election, God's decree is dependent on the response of the creatures, meaning God gets something from outside of himself, which makes him who he is. In this case, it's the knowledge, the, the forward looking knowledge of the free decisions that these creatures make. Same, same response to William Lane Craig and Molinism, right? The forward looking knowledge or the knowledge that is dependent on the will of the creature is something that identifies God as who and what he is, right? God is, in these views, we have to say God is the God of Abraham because Abraham chose to believe in God, right? God is the God of Trevor and Tony because Trevor and Tony engaged their wills to follow Jesus, right? So this is a totally different theology proper because Leighton Flowers... um, I don't know much about Leighton Flowers, but just based on what I've heard, he does not seem like the most sophisticated theologian. Um, I don't think that he would be able to give a good articulation of what the doctrine of divine simplicity is. If I had to guess, I would say he probably denies the doctrine of divine simplicity if he even knows what it is. But let's say that he didn't want to, right? Yep. He could not properly maintain a doctrine of divine simplicity and still maintain that God's decree of who would be saved is determined by God's election of who would be saved is determined by the free will choices of creatures. Yeah. Yeah. So I know that that's a a kind of an end runaround, but I I think we really need to land this idea that, and so here's, here's where this goes, right? Is that God in eternity past, this is, this is the reformed view. This is just straight up reformed, understanding of definite atonement as it plays into God's nature. God in eternity past had a will and his will included the creation, fall, uh, and redemption and glorification of a particular group of people, a particular set of people. And because he could not leave up to chance as it were, or up to the will of the creature could not, because it's not metaphysically possible. He could not leave up to the will or the chance of the creature who would occupy that set of the elect or the redeemed. That set was necessarily defined by him. Um, I think it was Dalazal, but Dalazal said the difference is that um, you can either have God's knowledge being given form by uh, by the creature, mm-hmm. or the creature could be given form by God's knowledge. 
Hmm. And so the former is the, the former is the Arminian view, and the latter is the Reform view. Yeah. So we affirm with the historic Christian Church that God is totally independent of His creatures. He's not added to by His creatures. They don't take away from Him. And this is where it ties into His Augustine thesis: is that these doctrines of simplicity, these entailments of simplicity, are entailments that would be held by people like Athanasius. Right. Athanasius makes his entire argument about the Trinity out of the soil of the doctrine of divine simplicity. Oh, yeah. And so if we want to deny that Athanasius held to any sort of predestinarian model. Now, he didn't articulate it. Now, I'll be transparent. Like there's no articulation of in Athanasius of predestination or election. Um, he may not have understood that this is a natural or a logical implication of what he's what he was teaching. But. The doctrine of divine simplicity, if rightly understood, cannot come with a non-predestinarian model of salvation and, and, and election. Absolutely. What do you think about that? I, I mean, I know very little about the early church, but um, in the in the little bit that I do know, like I think it was Carl Truman, um, but someone someone spoke to the point of you know if you read the fathers, um, like. Simplicity is the soil that exactly. theology proper. Well, I mean, it's kind of redundant at that point, but simplicity is the soil out of which theology proper springs. Like, right. so okay, let's pretend that no one in the world ever uttered the word predestination before Augustine. Like, okay, let's pretend that simplicity was uttered a lot right. before Augustine. Yep. Theology proper, classical Christian theism was uttered a whole lot. And good grief, we're just talking about the fathers here. I mean, we're, we're, that, well, we're, that's not even touching, touching on the Bible. Right. Like, we, we got to go to the source. Um, but that's that's another line of argument. Yeah. yeah. So um, one of the other things that came up in listening to some of these debates and, and discussions and back and forth between Leighton Flowers and Sonic Reformation guys is Leighton Flowers, uh, and this is part of why I think he's probably not a particularly sophisticated theologian, he basically made the point that like there's sort of like this stupid generation of Calvinists that don't really understand Calvinism, and then there's like the real Calvinists, the academic ones that understand that all the stuff he's saying about God actually, about Calvinism really meaning God's the author of evil, uh. that all of those, all of the good theologians understand that. Ugh. And who he points to as like the the like the cream of the crop uh, reformed theologians, Wayne Grudem, Tim Keller, and John Piper. Now, uh, all of the various controversies about those men aside, um, John Piper is not really an academic theologian. He's a pastor. He knows his theology. He understands the scriptures on a on a moderate level. I mean, he's a, he's a good expositor of the scripture. Mm-hmm. But he's also not really reformed. I mean, people are going to gasp when I say that, but like, he's not. He denies covenant theology. He holds to some strange kinds of views about uh, charismatic theology. Um, He's not really reformed. Tim Keller is another one of those people that if you really drill into his theology, he's a Presbyterian, but he also denies some significant tenets of what that means, right? He has a totally foreign ecclesiology in a lot of ways to actual Presbyterian theology. Mm. And Wayne Grudem, you know, I've not been shy about my thoughts on Wayne Grudem in terms of his ability to do theology and historical theology especially, but these three men are the ones he points to. So let me give you some other ones. James Dolezal, Jonathan Masters, um, Michael Horton, um, Lane Tipton, Richard Gaffin, uh, John Calvin, 
let's see, Mark Jones. Um, there's there's a whole world of Reformed theology, even oh, yeah. just living theologians, academic theologians, right? Liam Gallagher, we hold a, heard a wonderful address today. Oh, great. Liam Gallagher and Tim Keller, in terms of like, if you were to like have a hierarchy of theologians, they'd be on the same level as sort of like pastors doing theology from the pulpit. Yeah. Right. They're very different in terms of their, their commitments to certain things. But sure. Liam Gallagher, um, Carl Truman, like I said, um, Joel Beakey, yeah. right. He just published a systematic. And, and these are just alive people. Um, right. These are just the alive <laughs> people. Um, people like Voss and Bovink, like all of these reformed theologians, where does he think, that people like me learned the understanding of the difference between the um, necessity of consequence versus necessity of nature, like things, those distinctions that reform people have to make. So I would encourage people who are listening to this, who are going, I don't understand any of this. Pick up James Dalazal's book. Um, it's not super long. It is very difficult, but it's it's totally worth the the the. Um, it's worth the work you have to put into it. Um, you can also just go back and listen to all of the. Um, Southern California Reformed Baptist uh, Pastors Conferences. Yep, yep. Um, there's a whole series in there. I think it's like 2014 to 2017 maybe yeah. where they're really drilling in on, on theology proper. Yeah. And most of what you hear in the one that Dalazal's at, um, he was at a couple of them, is sort of like the pre-work or like the rough draft for all it, that. It's pretty down. much his book. Yeah. Right. So go check that out. Um, and you know what? Um, Leighton, if you're listening to this, um, James Dalazal is probably the cream of the crop for reformed um, theology proper right now. He's about as good as it gets. Um, and he, I think he just finished a doctorate, but he's a professor at Cairn University. So mm -hmm. if you're looking for a quote unquote real scholar who holds this stuff, that's your guy. Absolutely. Do you have any final thoughts before we call it a night? One thing, um, if, if anyone is uh, a little suspect about uh, Tony's brief um, exegesis of Exodus there, look in Matthew 22 and see what Jesus does with that very text um, of the burning bush. Because, right. um, well, <laughs> it's not like, uh, it's not like uh, Jesus is learning from, from Tony or any modern yahoos. Um, Jesus quotes scripture in the same way that these kind of arguments are made. Right. Um, speaking about the resurrection and, and so on and so forth. But um, that was just one thing that crossed my mind. Um, yeah, I think that's it. Yeah, and I mean, you know, we, we could have gone to any other number of passages, right? Oh, tons. We could have gone to, both in the Old and New Testament, we could have gone to John 6 or John 3 to mm -hmm. establish um, total depravity and the fact that God's calling and God's regeneration has to come prior to our understanding or even understanding that we need the kingdom of heaven, right? We could have gone to the Passover account and pointed out how the Passover lamb uh, atoned for a particular number of people such that there was like a conversion rate. Um, we can talk about how Jesus is the high priest and that he's making intercession, right? John 17, um, Jesus prays for all who would come to believe through the words of the apostle, yep. right? Are we really to believe that the eternal son of God was praying for a group of people that may never have come to actuality, yeah. right? The logical outcome of Leighton Flowers theology is that Christ could have been praying for all who would come to faith through the apostle's message and that being nobody, so Jesus literally could have been praying for an empty set. Yeah. And at the time, he was praying for an empty set because nobody had come to faith 
through the words of the apostle. So there, there's all these passages we could have gone anywhere. And that's that's the difference between the Socinian Biblicist model of theology that we have with Leighton Flowers, right? It's a Biblicist theology in that it, it insists on reading everything literally uh, right off the surface of the text. And it's dependent on a philosophical framework, right? Yeah. In the Reformation, uh, when the Arminian remonstrance came to power, and this is, this is what we'll close with, when they were coming to make their remonstration, they complained that, and this is something Calvinists are often accused of, they complained that Calvinism is a cold philosophical model that relies on logical necessity from the scripture and not the scripture itself. And in reality, the Arminian position starts with the philosophical proposition that in order for God to be gracious and for God's salvation to be genuinely eliciting a response of love from the creature, that that creature must have the choice to reject God. Well, that is just nonsense, and it's not even biblical, right? Yeah. Was the father free to reject the son prior to the incarnation? Of course not. But we wouldn't say that that means that God's love for the son is not genuine, Yeah. right? And again, we either have to say he could have rejected the son, which is what Leighton Flowers' theology has to say, <laughs> or love can't be genuine, or we have to say that that love is God. So for it to for him to be able to not love the son prior to the incarnation would mean that he would have to cease to be God, which is just an incoherency. So we could have gone any number of places. I think this has been a good sampling. Um, We're going to sign off. Trevor, why don't you give us the closing words? Do you know them? This is the test. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Uh